Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, Again, my name is Weston, and I want to thank Jeff for giving me the opportunity to do this guest sermon today. Uh, And I think I was chosen because uh, I, well, Maybe Jeff didn't want to, but I get to, uh, talk, the opportunity to talk to you guys about prostitutes at Christmas time. <laughs> and I promise you it's the exact opposite of what you're thinking. So my name, uh, again, my name is Weston, and the, looking at the background of my name, it literally translates to West Town. It's nothing spectacular. The story of how I got my name was that my parents, who uh, may or may not be watching, hey guys, um, thought that I was going to be a girl. And uh, when I came out as a boy, they didn't have a name, so I remained nameless in the hospital for two days until they got to the W in the alphabet book of baby boy names. And they said, hey, I like that, won't choose that. And that's, that's my name. There's not a lot of depth to um, surrounding who I am or who I was meant to be. That's just uh, how I got my name. Um, but names in the Bible often carried a lot of significance with it. A few examples from the story of Abraham who was chosen to be the father of Israel, or of, of the, uh, to start the Hebrew nation. So uh, Abraham's name changed from Abram to Abraham, and Abraham uh, translates to meaning um, father of the multitude. His wife Sarai, her name was changed from Sarai to Sarah, which meant princess of the multitudes. And they had a son named Isaac, whose name meant laughter, because Sarah laughed so hard at God when he told her, that she would have a son at such an old age. So, pretty cool. Um, So, my name means nothing, um, but growing up, I had nicknames that maybe were more appropriate for describing more about who I was. Uh, My nickname, again, true story, was The Mule, uh, because I was stubborn as could be. Uh, I can laugh about it now because my identity's not really... uh, my identity's kind of changed over the years, and so I don't carry the weight of that name anymore. But anyone who knows me can probably attest to why I had that name. But just don't call it me now. It, it's a, it's, so it's a piece of my history, and that's a nickname that has shaped me for better or for worse um, as I've grown up. But there's other, there's other names that shape my identity um, that you might know me as Weston the Statistician or Weston the Dad or Weston the Kickball Champion. So those are identities of mine. So now I'm going to ask you guys, what are some identities? Is anybody brave enough to share some of their nicknames that they had growing up? And if not, I've got one in my back pocket. What's that? Kazoo. Kate Zoo. Okay, so Japanizing the name Kate. It's Kate Zoo. Kate Zoo. Anybody else? <laughs> Kevin Tyndall, with the world's most glorious beard, is known as The Beard. So, um, Megan's nickname growing up, my wife's nickname growing up, was Slimer, because she was so affectionate. She was in a very affectionate child, and so her name was Slimer. So, it, it, it <laughs> I love you. Um, now, what if your, the, the nickname or given name associated with you was the prostitute? 
and everyone referred to you as that. That's a heck of an identity to carry around. And that's the woman we're going to be talking about today is Rahab the harlot. And basically, every mention of her name in the Bible includes that full description. Not only uh, do people refer to her as Rahab the harlot, but again, her name has significance. Her name actually means wide open. So her full name said together in Hebrew means wide open the prostitute. That's a lot, that's, that's a heavy name to carry around. Um, but yet, for, every, for almost every mention of Rahab as a harlot or a prostitute, uh, she's also given reverence of her faith and deeds in advancing God's kingdom. So hundreds of years later, this is a scripture from James 2.23, or 25. Uh, this is written hundreds of years later. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous? So here, James is purposely contrasting, um, or sorry, comparing uh, Abraham to Rahab. She's being mentioned in the same vein uh, as having faith for the, with the man chosen to be the original covenant in the lineage of Israel. And this contrast highlights where I want to get to today, that in the end, your faith in Christ, through the grace of God, saves your life and changes your identity. Hallelujah. Merry Christmas. So, um, obviously, just a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, this is going to be P PG-13 language um, because of the obvious uh, uh, subject we're talking about. So, um, Merry Christmas. So, good point, Weston. It's Christmas time, so why exactly are we talking about prostitutes, and how does this relate to Christmas? Where are the cute kids with angel wings? It's December after all. Um, well, as Jeff mentioned, this, uh, the, this, the series we're doing is about the women listed in the genealogy of, uh, of Jesus, in which the name Rahab is mentioned. But before we get into the thick of things, I'd first like to acknowledge some things about Rahab, specifically as it pertains to the genealogy. Basically, there's a lot of uh, unsettled discussion about whether this Rahab mentioned in the genealogy is the same Rahab, the harlot, mentioned in the Old Testament in Joshua. If you're interested, I can nerd out with you after church about it, but uh, I want to qualify everything I talk about today is based on the assumption that these two Rahabs are the same. Because I want to be really careful about the extrapolations being made here, as interpreting the truthful history contained in the Bible is extremely important to me. Um, if it's not true, then it's not something I want to say is true. As one author put it, to include a harlot, canonine woman, in the genealogy is almost unthinkable. Sexual promiscuity was punishable de by death offense among the Israelites, and the Old Testament made it clear that the Messiah would be the son of David, so uh, family records were vital. So if it's true, it's pretty awesome because it puts a prostitute in the lineage of Jesus. And the reason I'm comfortable making this assumption today is because I think the big takeaway from if that is true is something that's already made very clear in the New Testament. There is a place for everyone in the family and pedigree of Jesus. Okay, so now uh, a little bit of background. For those who have been in the Bible a few times, you may have heard about Rahab the harlot. This story is found in the book of Joshua. Now the way that Joshua is written is to provide a historically realistic depiction of history of Israel conquering Jericho, and that story is interwoven 
uh, with the main characters in the story of Rahab. Rahab. It's kind of like watching a movie or a TV show that talks about an era through the perspective of a family, like the Wonder Years, I guess. I don't know. Uh, which in itself is mind-blowing because if you think, you know, this is not the Wonder Years. This is a canonized story in, uh, in the Bible. And it could have been written as an exercise in chest-thumping of why Israel was so good. But instead, we get an unlikely hero um, in a prostitute in a society which did not tolerate such things. So, um, uh, so first we're going to review the whole overview of the story, and then we'll dive in. So uh, 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 this is part of the Old Testament. The Jews have left Egypt and have wandered through the desert 40 years and have now assumed leadership under Joshua after Moses' passing. So that's why it's called the book of Joshua, because Joshua is the he uh, head honcho now. And God sent the Jews back to the promised land to reclaim the Israel. And the first stop on this journey is to the city of Jericho, uh, which is a city filled with Canaanites, including Rahab the harlot. Now, I personally love having pictures to help me imagine the story. So here's a picture of what Jericho would have looked like. It's an ancient city-state and fortified with two walls. And the reason there's two walls is because um, there was probably uh, population expansion. So they had people here, and then they got too many people, so they had to build another wall um, around it. So this is where it, this is taking place. Now, before the Jews advance into the city, Josh sends, Joshua sends two spies out into Jericho. And at some point during their espionage, they go to Rahab the harlot's house. Very soon afterwards, the king of Jericho gets word about the spies and sends guards to knock on the door. She hides the spies on the roof and lies to the guards about their whereabouts and sends them on their way. Rahab then makes a deal with these Israeli spies to spare her family as she knows the Jews will soon come to take, overtake the city. She helps them escape by luring them down in, uh, outside the city walls and uh, promises to leave a scarlet rope to identify uh, her house so that she'll be safe. So going back to that picture really quick, um, I think this, is, this part of the story is cool because it helps me to understand where she would have been situated. She would have been situated on, her house would have been on the second wall on the outside where she would have been, one, able to lower down the spies outside the city walls and help them escape. Um, but two, it also shows uh, how she hung a scarlet rope from her window to identify which one was her house. So when the Israelis came back, they could identify this is the house, uh, no one's to touch them. So, in the back to the story, then, guard, uh, then God parts the Jordan, kind of like the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk through, Joshua prepares his army, they circle around the uh, city of Jericho seven times, they blow the trumpets, the walls fall down, and the city is overtaken and destroyed. Everyone except for Rahab, the harlot, and her family. So, if we briefly flash forward to the New Testament several hundred years later, we again see Rahab the harlot celebrated as one of the heroes of this story. Um, in Hebrews, Paul mentions that by faith, the Rahab, uh, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now, Paul uh, is talking about displaying her faith through works, but also still reminding everyone that she's a prostitute. I mean, this is hundreds of years later. Rahab the prostitute, right? And then James, um, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when uh, she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. James, talking about her faith 
through her works, but also reminding everybody that she's a prostitute. I mean, so I'm just gonna, so I think it's important to note that a large swath of Jewish people did not have surnames or last names until like the 19th century, like the 1800s. It just wasn't part of their culture. So you referred, you referred to somebody as something that was associated with them. That's why they say Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus didn't have a last name. Last names were just not a thing. But it's still like, Rahab the Harlot, like, come on, like, if you drink once, are you forever a drunk? Um, can you imagine that if every time um, if every time people mentioned your name, they mentioned the worst season of your life? Even hundreds of years later after you're gone, all right, so back to the story. Uh, a little bit of context. The city of Jericho was filled with Canaanites. And now the Canaanites were simply put like disgusting ev evil people. They sacrificed children to their gods. Sexual deviance and prostitution was a large part of their society and their spiritual practices. Like th that was just like part of society. So we can assume that La Rahab um, lived in the city and was integrated as part of this system. Being involved with prostitution wouldn't have been uncommon for this society. And that describes the situation that we found uh, Rahab living in as we cut back to the beginning of the story. All right, so what was it that James and Paul were referring to that uh, when they were talking about how Rahab demonstrated her faithfulness to God? Well, there's really three main points here. One, Rahab hid the Israelites before the uh, king guards, king's guards came. And if you read carefully, it says that the spies were on, roof, on the roof as the guards came and knocked on the door. So she had already premeditated that they would come and hid them appropriately. Number two, she sent the guards away. She admitted that the spies had come to her house, but then she lied to them. Um, but uh, an interesting thing to note is, is that it doesn't actually mention that the guards came in and ransacked her house. They just knocked on her door, took her for her word, and then... Um, she was able to persuade them to go elsewhere. So she must have been a woman who at least had some sort of validity to what she was. Maybe she was like in the king's prostitution circle. I, I don't know. Um, but then, number three, Rahab announced why she did the first two things. And uh, this is from the text. She feared and believed in the God of Israel. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. What happened was a, uh, was a woman who had heard about what God of Israel had accomplished in the desert and believed in helping the spies. So it's not hard to imagine that by hiding the spies and helping them back outside the city walls, that Rahab knew that she was throwing her Canaanite life away. And she did it out of faith uh, to the God of Israel. All right, so the rest of this topic is going to get pretty heavy. I'm just going to go ahead and warn, uh, so I'm going to caveat what I'm saying. If you're a person that has feelings of unworthiness or has experienced prostitution or even has a question about God's character, I want to just go ahead and tell you the ending. This next, uh, the story of the Bible, including the story of Jericho and the story of mankind, has, been seen, has to be seen in its entirety. There are some hard truths that will be told, and so I want you to hear this first. Your past does not define you, and you were loved unconditionally and made whole through Jesus, no exceptions. All right, so the book of Rahab, uh, so the book leaves Rahab to return to Joshua and, uh, and the Israelite army preparing to take over. And what happens next is perhaps the hardest thing for me 
to stomach in maybe the entire Bible. Just before uh, the trumpet blows, Joshua is giving his final speech to his army as, as they're about to invade. It says, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are within her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Now, this doesn't read as in English. This is not a good translation. The word devoted here is a reference to this um, Jewish concept of harem or harem. I'm not really sure how to say it, honestly, um, or harem. I'm so I'm just going to say harem. And harem is a curse meant that uh, something or someone was absolutely and irrevocably consecrated so that it could not be redeemed. Like, that's heavy. So when Joshua is saying this city of Jericho is supposed to be devoted to the Lord, he's saying that they are not worthy of being saved. And so they, they must be destroyed. It's heavy. Um, I'm just going to read this next part. This is from an author who uh, is much smarter than me in this area. That Israel is instructed to keep itself clean from the accursed things which have been devoted to the Lord. As executors of this curse, Israel would be subject to the curse and thus bring trouble on the camp if it, were, if it partook of the devoted things. In fact, just before the end of the story, Rahab and her family are assigned to a place outside the camp of Israel because of their ceremonial un uncleanliness. The contrast noted in the report of Joshua's word in which there's a tension between the curse and rescue is also present here in the midst of the scene of destruction, exemplary of what would happen to uh, Canaan as a whole is the description of Rahab's rescue. Now there's a lot of tension here. Harem is a really hard concept for me and, prob um, and probably for you to wrestle with, especially knowing what br uh, Jesus brings to the table several years later. And the elephant in the room is around why was Jericho judged as irredeemable? Why would God allow people to be uh, irredeemable? What is God's character? Did it change between the Old Testament and New Testament? Why is Rahab saved and not other people? Is that fair? Ultimately, I think the elephant is who is in charge and who gets to decide what is good. And these are tough questions that really get at the heart at the story of Jesus' lineage. So I'm going to leave this story here and return back to it later, sitting in this tension, because I think the discussion needs to have a little bit more context to fully appreciate the significance of these questions. So let's jump to prostitutes in the Bible. It should be of no surprise that the Bible thinks poorly of prostitution. In the Old Testament, Solomon provides the wisdom that for a, for a prostitute is a deep pit, an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. Um, guys, you're not out of the woods either. No Israelite, man or woman, is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of female prostitution or male prostitution into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow because the Lord your God detests them both. So no prostitution inside or outside the church by man or woman. As it relates to the Canaanites, the people inside of Jericho, there's incredibly harsh language written in Leviticus analogizing prostituting yourself to the god Moloch which is the God of child sacrifice that I had alluded to earlier, and how angry it makes God. 
And so uh, in Leviticus happens just before Joshua, so uh, there's a strong connection to this story, and people would have understood at the time. Um, in the New Testament, prostitution is still not viewed favorably, even by Jesus. In the parable of the two sons, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Here we see Jesus acknowledging in his parable what was known in the Jewish culture at the time, that tax collectors and prostitutes were seen as the lowest of the low in Jewish society. But perhaps the most notable story of prostitution in the Bible is the story of Gomer, who is Hosea's wife. Now, Hosea, Hosea is a major prophet in the Old Testament. This story actually happens after the story of Rahab. And um, his so Hosea's sole responsibility is to listen for and to translate God's word for instructing the people of Israel. The book opens up when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea. He said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So wait a minute. Is God saying that all of his people are basically prostitutes? Thankfully, the story of Hosea is a picture of God's redeeming love for his people. It doesn't start off that way. But Hosea ends up finding the prostitute Gomer, knowing that she will wound his heart by being unfaithful to him. So he finds her and he marries her and they live a great life together. But sure enough, uh, Gomer ends up leaving, um, leaving Hosea and their children and returning to a life of sin. God then tells Hosea to go and find her and bring her home. After searching for her, Hosea finds his wife being sold in a slave auction. And although she is dirty and broken by sin, Hosea purchases her back with his own money and takes her into his home again. When I first started preparing this sermon, there was a, I thought of a music video I'd seen by a Christian artist named Josh Girls. For any, anyone interested, he, he's like a hipster Christian uh, musical rock star who's really, like, he makes really good non-mainstream Christian music, so if anyone's like, um, the song is called Words Remain if you want to look it up, it, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, but the music video for the song is a cartoon, and it's a modern day representation of the story of Hosea, in which a man bends on one knee to propose to a street prostitute. She accepts his ring, and they live happily together until one night she rolls out of bed, takes her wedding ring off, and leaves it on the side table and returns to the street. And what does the husband do at this point? He goes out, and he finds her on the street and presents that ring to her again. And what does she do? Daniel could uh, advance it. She turns away in disgust. He finds her, brings the ring, uh, sorry, she runs, she runs in disgust and continues prostituting. And every time that she runs away, he continually pursues her with the ring. And every time he does this, she denies it or throws it away, even when she's passed out in the alleyway beside the trash cans. And as a husband, like, so that watching this music video, in, in, you know, on YouTube in a modern-day interpretation is a lot easier for me to connect to. And because as I watched the video, I watched and I felt so many things from explosive anger to intense sadness about what I would feel like if that happened to me. Like, and ultimately, 
I felt sympathy for the husband in the video. And then I realized in the story, I'm not the man, I'm the woman. Those same feelings I had been reflecting as the man in the story is how I make God feel when my heart turns from him. Now the tension in the story of Rahab being a prostitute becomes palpable, and I start to understand the gravity of the situation. Like, it, it's, it's building, right? So, the big question. After hearing the story of Gomer, do you think you deserve to be called a prostitute? One of the hardest things for people to discuss, both non-Christians and Christians alike, is the idea of what we deserve. And oftentimes the idea of deserving is, is conflated with a question of how much you want or don't want something. Ask your kids if they deserve more TV time, or if you deserve that raise, or if you deserve the house that you live in. I like my house. I think I, I want my house, so I think I deserve it. Uh, so, when it comes to uh, so when it comes to the question of being deserved, be called a prostitute. The question may be interpreted a lot of different ways, but regardless of how it's interpreted, I don't think anyone wants their name mentioned uh, a thousand years later in the sentence, like Weston the prostitute. But I also think that there's not a hard case to be made that we all sell ourselves for something. And you may be thinking to yourself, Weston, go easy. Most of us don't actually prostitute. And you're right, in the physical sense of what we do. We but in the spiritual sense, I think there's a really easy case to be made. Talking about sexual immorality, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. Jesus raises the bar that it's just not just the actions you do, but what is going on in your heart. And basically saying that everything that turns your heart away from God is a sin. And man, I hate to hear that. Like, I really, like, but I'm guilty of a lot more sin than I can probably even imagine. And I stand up here in front of you guys ready to admit that. Part of my story of how I came to know Christ um, w at, the, at one of the beginnings, when, when I was about 23 or so, I came down with a health issue um, called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And um, when I suddenly came down with it, I didn't think I deserved it. Uh, this was before I was a Christian. Uh, honestly, I, was, I angrily contrasted myself with other people who had worse obvious lifestyle choices and thought, you know what, they deserve it more than I do. I don't deserve this. In essence, in, in essence, I was prostituting myself to this idea that I know what I deserve. And if I didn't get it, it wasn't fair because my actions were mostly good, and that, my actions, is, is what counted. It wasn't until I truly understood the gospel that I started to understand just how much of myself was the self-righteous indignation. But I couldn't help myself. In Romans 7, Paul says, I do not understand what I do, for I want to do, I, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I do. In other words, Paul rightly says it, I can't help but pursue other things with my heart. If Christ is the bride of the church, then I am Gomer, the prostitute. And my heart constantly betrays me to run away from him and live a life on the street. And I deserve that title and the consequences of not just my behavior, but my heart as well. Man, Weston, this doesn't sound like a Christmas sermon. 
So what does this have to do with Christmas? Going back to the story of Rahab, this is the final mention in the story of Jericho. But Joshua spared, the, uh, spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. That is the key. In other words, Rahab the harlot was an exemption from harem. Like, she participated in all the things living in Jericho and was still invited into God's family where she lived with him. It's actually nuts if you think about the culture. I mean, that was like culture, uh, cancel culture on steroids, right? Like, it's, it's nuts. As one author puts it, the last thing you would have expected for, was for God to go out of his way to save a pagan prostitute in a city that was about to be utterly destroyed because of sin. But that's exactly what happened. Her life was saved because of her faith through undeserved grace. And this story links towards the bright future of, um, of what is undeserved and what we all receive in Jesus. So the question we asked earlier, do you deserve to be called a prostitute? I think the question now becomes, do you deserve grace? The biblical answer here is no, and you can't earn it, but you get it anyways through Jesus. The gospel is this, or this is a quote from Tim Keller that uh, Jeff uses all the time. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. My story of accepting the gospel was when I realized that I have been labeled good through Jesus no matter what I did. No matter what I did, nor the labels I put on myself or other people put on me, I was a prostitute made holy. This is a quote from the Ragamuffin Gospel as it relates to how we label ourselves. God not only loves me as I am, but also knows me as I am. Because of this, I don't need to apply spiritual cosmetics to make myself presentable to him. I can accept ownership of my poverty and powerlessness and neediness. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. All right, so I want to leave you guys. This is, this is the closing thought, and I want this to really sit with you. If the Rahab, is the ge- uh, if the Rahab in the genealogy is the same as the Rahab in Joshua, this is the only time in the Bible she's not referred to as a harlot. That's the identity that you're invited into, and that's the joy in why Christmas is such a big deal. So this Christmas, there's a lot going on with our identity. We're going to be going back to friends or coworkers or family that maybe we haven't seen in a while. And a lot of us deal with these roles of, uh, the stress of the roles in identity uh, that what we've had or what we do have. But imagine if, what it would look like if the people you interact with saw you the same as Jesus sees you. Now imagine what it would look like if you saw them the same as Jesus sees you. Now go do that. Let them know that your identity is found in Christ and not in your nickname, Twinkle Toes, or the Mule, or whatever it is, and that they have that same opportunity. And let them know that that is the gift of Christmas. Undeserved grace and the message that you don't have to keep any labels because of a baby that was born sinless and died sinless for you. No more harem. You're no longer a prostitute. 
Hallelujah. Merry Christmas.